Welcome to Season 9 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage just over $100 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional and individual investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to partners of and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. This week, we're sharing a conversation that I had back in the summer of 2021 with the managing director at HPS, who's a driving force in our direct lending business. She attended NYU's Stern School of Business before joining J.P. Morgan to work in their leveraged finance and financial sponsors business. In 2007, she moved over to the Carlisle Group, a large alternative asset manager. And during her tenure at Carlisle, she was a founding member of the direct lending platform, serving as the head of origination for a liquid credit and was a member of the direct lending investment committee. After 12 years there, we were fortunate enough to bring her over to HPS, where she is now the co-head of North American Core Senior Lending. She has the misfortune of sharing an office wall with her podcast hosts, so has to listen to me jabber away at full volume all day long. But despite that, I'm honored to call her not just a colleague, but a friend. And so, without any further ado, I'm excited to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Grishma Parekh, HPS's co-head of North American Core Senior Lending. Grishma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to finally be here. It only took me sharing the wall with you to get here. Grishma, let's begin at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from originally? So I was born in India and I immigrated um, with my family when I was six years old. We moved to Queens, New York, which is a big immigrant hub. And when I was 10, my family relocated us to Jericho, New York, which is in Long Island, um, which is where I really spent my formative years from sixth grade onwards. So you decide to go to the Stern School of Business at NYU. Why focus on business undergrad, Grish? I actually had no plans to focus on business undergrad. Um, This will not sound surprising, but, you know, coming from the Indian household with uh, conservative parents who really left everything, came here with not a lot. In their mind, there was quite literally, you know, two careers that offered a tremendous amount of stability. Um, One was medicine and the other was engineering. And it was really probably like the summer before I was going to start at NYU, my father, who is um, a businessman and an entrepreneur, sort of like set me aside and was like, I don't know if you should do this medicine thing. Like, you know, I I feel like I know you, you're my daughter, and I think you'd be really good at business. Great advice for your father. This is amazing. Yeah. All right. So you graduate, you started JP Morgan out of school. You ended up in leveraged finance and I believe to start. Did you actually end up there or did you pick that among other options and, and tell us a little bit about the leveraged finance business there? Sure. I was in sort of the like Chase JP Morgan ecosystem for several internships before that. So in you know, my sophomore year, I actually interned in Chase Auto Finance. And then my junior year, I moved over into Latin America MA, which is actually really interesting since I'm actually not a native Spanish or Portuguese speaker. I'm actually not even very good, Um, but it was actually a tremendous experience for me. And I solicited a lot of advice from people that I trusted and respected. And, you know, a piece of advice that has always really carried me through my career is you want to find an organization. And then within that organization, you want to identify like where their strengths are. And then you sort of want to be within like the epicenter of their strengths. And so with, with JP Morgan, their strength was leverage finance. Yeah, it's interesting, Grishma. I mean, I feel like the play to the firm strength thing is an interesting one. You know that you're going to have an interesting experience because it's literally what they're best at. So you learn the business, you have this good experience at JP Morgan. 
It's 2007 and you decide to move over to Carlisle. This is a transition in your career from the sell side to the buy side, from being an advisor to being an investor, though obviously some of what you do in leverage finance is investing. But tell me about that transition. How hard of a personal career move was that for you? It was difficult from a personal perspective because I had gotten very close to you know many of the folks who had supported me throughout the years at J.P. Morgan. But it was it was absolutely, without a doubt, the right professional decision for me and, and all and most of those people continue to remain dear friends and mentors of mine, um, which I think is like another major theme um, of my life, which is you know using a lot of those people to help really guide me in terms of making the right decisions. Um, and then joining the team at Carlisle was actually quite smooth because um, the the credit business within the Carlisle group was still relatively small. Um, this was a very similar camaraderie-based culture. Well, it's interesting, Grishman, because it's like the opposite of your J.P. Morgan experience, right? You weren't, it wasn't the firm's <laughs> yeah. strength at the time, right? And yes. I can appreciate that that different experience must have been, must have been interesting for you. So, Grishma, when you joined Carlisle, there wasn't really a, a private credit business there, or really, I mean, globally, it was not, you know, as early in the days of the evolution of this. Tell me what it was when you joined, and then, you know, you were there for over a decade. What was the trajectory and path of that business within Carlisle? So private credit or direct lending um, as an asset class that we know of it today didn't exist in 2007. You had two types of lenders. You had senior lenders and you had junior lenders. And senior lenders were you know, groups that were either you know, middle market commercial banks or the GE capitals of the world. And on the junior side, you had one or two sort of scaled junior capital um, investors. And then the balance were, were, were focused on the middle market. Um, and at Carlisle, I had joined what was called Carlisle Mezzanine Partners at the time that they were raising their second fund. The focus was middle market, mainly because of sort of the average hold sizes. And um, we wanted to be in a position where we would be leading the tranches. And it largely focused on, on sponsor finance. And we did that from 2007 until late 2011. Instead of just going out and raising a third MES fund, let's actually create a vehicle that would allow us to be able to deploy capital up and down the capital structure, have more flexibility, and be a solution provider to our clients. And so and we really started on a blank sheet of paper, and we designed what was going to be um, Carlisle's direct lending program, which was their first foray into private credit at the time. And we, we chose a, a business development company as the primary vehicle in which we were going to raise the capital and then deploy the capital. You just said the word business development company, referred to commonly as a BDC. Uh, what is that? What is a BDC structure? A BDC is a 40-act vehicle. It is regulated by the SEC, and it was, it was designed um, in order to provide, originally, middle market companies with access to financing because there was a period of time that continued into GFC and then and really propelled thereafter um, where the large banks um, who were the primary money center institutions that were lending money to small and medium-sized businesses, they pivoted their business models to focus on much larger businesses where they can generate more efficient fees. And so there was a real void in the marketplace um, for lending to these size companies. And so the SEC created tax benefits and other structural enhancements in order to be able to create products that would um, allow for a small, medium-sized businesses to get access to um, capital. Got it. Okay. So you've grown this business. You know, Parlyle has become a serious player, obviously, in private credit over your decade plus there. 
You're in a great seat at a great firm. When you sat down with the head of direct lending uh, at HPS and former HPS cast guest, Mike Patterson, what was the pitch and why was it compelling? I, it's funny. Like, I don't necessarily, I don't know if, um, if and, and maybe Mike is brilliant at this. It never really feels like a pitch, <laughs> um, but I have known Mike and Scott for a dozen years or so. And I've also known many of the other folks, including my my co-head, Michael Fenstermacher. He and I were analysts together at J.P. Morgan. And I had gotten to a, a stage in my career where that that culture piece of it was almost equally as important as the success of the firm. And wouldn't it be perfect if I could find a place that actually married both? a culture that um, I knew that I would thrive in with a group of people that I had a tremendous amount of respect for and I had known for a long time. It just sort of felt like a natural time in my career and where HPS was in its evolution to come together. Okay, so we mentioned your title as co-head of Core Senior Lending. What does that mean? What is Core Senior Lending at HPS? So Core Senior Lending is, you know, first lean investments into very high quality market leading franchises in growing sectors. These are industries that are defensive in nature and they are backed by private equity sponsors or they are private or public businesses. So tell me this, you've been doing private credit, you know, really since 2007, which is to say you've been part of the modern evolution of direct lending as a business, as as an asset class. Sitting here now in the summer of 2022, how has that changed? Like, how's the market evolved? And how do you, you know, think about that over the last, you know, 15 or so years? Yeah, I mean, it's a truly institutional global asset class in a way that in 2007, you certainly couldn't imagine. You know, two or three years ago, I don't think you could have imagined the sheer size of the asset class or its growth. It's $1.2 trillion today. And according to Prequin, it's expected to double over the next five years, eclipsing the leverage loan market and potentially even the high yield market. But sort of more than that, the type of companies that would actually be relevant to. And what I mean by that is the asset class sort of started as being a solution provider to middle market companies. These were, you know, depending on how you defined it, but these were companies that were generating earnings of 20 million to 60 or 75 million. And thereafter, um, most companies would sort of quote graduate into um, an institutional market, institutional public credit markets, where they were able to get more liquidity, better terms, better pricing, so on and so forth. What has happened over the course of the last two years is the private credit market is truly disintermediating the public credit markets in a meaningful way. And the size of deals that we are able to finance is several billion dollars and really grows um, with the passage of every quarter or two. Um, And that's something that I think I certainly could never have predicted, you know, over the last several years would occur with this asset class. Yeah, so clearly gotten materially bigger. And if you look at it, and I, you know, it's funny, I I was doing an investor meeting the other day, so I had these numbers at my fingertips. If you actually look at since you joined the direct lending business, quote unquote, in 2007, you know, levered loans, broadly syndicated, bank-led syndications have grown at about a 7% annual growth rate over that period of time from 2007 to today. Uh, Private credit has grown at about a 21% annual growth rate. So you have two roughly directly competitive products and one's grown at 3x the growth rate. 
why? Like, why is the market gravitating towards this offering versus the broadly syndicated offering? Several reasons. So the two most recent reasons, we provide companies with access to committed financing, typically in the form of delayed draw term loans. And what that means is we specify a leverage level that they need to be at pro forma for drawing the debt. Uh, We also specify um, a very specific use of proceeds um, to which they can draw the debt. But, you know, if they meet those handful of requirements, um, the company's performing, so on and so forth, then they have access to this capital. And in an environment where that amount of certainty in order to be able to effectuate a company's growth strategy is incredibly important, they value that particular element of private credit. The second is ratings. The rating agencies, I think borrowers have found to be at times unpredictable. And if you get um, ratings downgrades or if you get outlook downgrades, it really impacts the way that your public debt trades because you have investors in the public credit markets that have to move or have very limited buckets for triple C's. And so the the agencies, again, depending on sector-specific issues, depending on macro issues, they may penalize borrowers irrespective of the performance of that company. And I think a lot of of companies just, they didn't want to operate their businesses tied to just their ratings. And then um, a few other reasons beyond that is confidentiality. You would be talking to four to six of the largest, most scaled private credit managers, and you will you will have full certainty around your financing. And then the fourth element is this word that I've used over and over again is certainty. A company knows exactly what they're going to have in terms of the economic arrangement, um, the documentation, the structure, the basket, so on and so forth in their credit agreement when they're negotiating with us versus when they do a, a public offering, it's underwritten by you know, a handful of banks who have flex provisions such that depending on market conditions, they can end up with a financing package that is wildly different than they thought that they would have when they first entered into negotiations with the bank. So it's interesting, Grishma. So those last two in particular, you know, functionally what that is, is cutting out the middleman, right? So a bank advises and says, we think we can execute at X, but if we can't execute at X and it needs to be more expensive, you know, we'll protect you, but it's going to be way more expensive. You know, if you go direct to your lender, they can just say, well, we'll execute at X or maybe even a little bit outside of X, but you know exactly where you're going to be. The discretion is the exact same point, right? You can go to a single party to offer you a billion-dollar loan these days as opposed to going out to 100. And if you have a family-owned business and you're sensitive of confidentiality, the second you go out to 100 people, it's you know it's in the journal the next day. That's just the way the math works. Now, both of those, though, imply that this is competitive with and, as you said, sort of potentially disintermediating the banks. How does the relationship with a bank work for direct lenders? Because we're a competitor, but we're also still a valuable counterparty. Like, How does that practically all play out? So obviously the rhetoric is you know, direct lending, private credit as an asset class, you know, fully disintermediated the banks. Like, yeah, like sort of one dimension, that's true. In another dimension, it's the banks actually made a concerted effort to pivot their business models um, towards a certain size threshold of companies. And so they, they said, but, you know, companies below X amount of revenue or Y amount of EBITDA probably don't make sense for us to cover, but they actually like this asset class. And so the the banks have chosen that the more efficient way to get access to this asset class, you know, middle market, upper middle market, large cap lending is actually to be lenders to the private credit managers. Interesting. Okay, helpful. So Grishma, in 2021, HPS launched its first private BDC called HLEND. Tell our listeners what HLEND is and how a private BDC works. 
So HPS's inaugural product that provides access to our private credit investing program to non-institutional investors. So it is like non-traded BDC. And what that means is it's not expected to be listed on any of the major exchanges. It has a more simplified tax reporting structure in that our investors are receiving a 1099 versus a K-1. And then there's a increased amount of investor transparency in that because it's public, we file with the SEC. So you mentioned size and the ability to tackle large deals as part of the evolution of direct lending. And we've seen this acceleration of these sort of mega direct lending deals. So north of a billion dollars being clubbed up by a handful of lenders. Is that a moment in time phenomenon or do you think that will be a continuing trend? The latter, absolutely. There has been various moments in time that have occurred over the last two years that have allowed for borrowers to be able to see the size and the power and the stability and the consistency of the private credit markets. And they can now appreciate that a deal of, you know, three, four, five billion dollars in size is readily consummated in the private markets. And at terms, while um, at face value, are wider than what they could get done, assuming a you know white hot, very open, very robust um, leverage loan or high yield market. Like that, the reality is like that's that's not always the case. In fact, like we're living in an environment right now where the public credit markets are incredibly uncertain, very opaque, really unclear, and, and frankly not really open for anybody except the best, biggest, and most seasoned, um, i.e., known borrowers into that market, and so. They don't really know if there's going to be actually a, a premium that they're going to be um, paying in, in the private credit markets. Yeah, it's interesting. All the merits of private credit that you articulated at the beginning, they're true in a benign economic environment, but they're really true in a volatile economic environment. And that is the logical consequence, I think, that has created you know some of these large direct lending deals that we've seen. Grishma, last question on HPS. You mentioned at the beginning, uh, part of the appeal coming here was the culture. And I think you've been lucky to work at a a number of institutions with strong corporate cultures. How do you define HPS culture and, and what makes HPS HPS? It's very straightforward. And what I mean by that is everyone here is here because they really enjoy the business of investing and with credit investing in particular. And that's what we do. And so it really simplifies so many of the what sometimes otherwise are complicated corporate dynamics. It's a group of people that are incredibly talented, but no ego, um, which is also rare to find in our industry and at, and at firms of sort of this caliber. And I think everybody is excited to help one another. And there's a, an element of you know teamwork and camaraderie, both on the investing side and you know across the organization and all the other areas um, that support the investing side of the business. I second that, Grishma. Well said. All right. Well, with that, we're excited about what you're doing and what you're up to and and continuing to grow your business. It's all exciting stuff. Thank you. With that, Grishma, let's move to the last segment of the podcast. This is something we like to call Best Ideas. We'll offer up something that's added value in our lives recently called Best Ideas because our goal as investors is always to maximize exposure to our best ideas. Grishma, (laughs) as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? So... My best idea, this is like outside of, you know, finance or work, um, but it is actually, I really encourage folks, it's worked for me, um, to like find a personal project 
And like I say project because I'm sort of project minded and you know people also call it like, you know, you can also be like hobbies, so on and so forth. But I think it's really important um, to use that as sort of the the channel in which you can be a little bit more of a creative. There's, you know, so many really interesting benefits to like our industry and uh, super dynamic and, you know, incredibly talented and hardworking, but like, well, creativity, like is, you know, as much as we, we think we're being super creative in our structures and in our understanding of these businesses, like we are not creatives. Um, and I, but I do believe that everybody. I mean, first um, of all, first of all, how, how dare you, Grishma? Oh, no, of course you're right. <laughs> Keep going. I think having an outlet um, and to explore, to find, to tap into your creative side is really, is really important. Um, I tend to like move often, like every three or four years, um, you know, we sort of move uh, apartments, houses, so on and so forth. And I sort of ask myself, like, why do I like to do that? Um, and I think it is because it creates like projects for me. There's a project about organizing, um, purging, um, that allows me to sort of tap into like my OCD side. But there's also gives me a chance to have like this blank sheet of paper every time that I'm entering a new house that I get to think about in terms of like design and color and paint and all of that stuff. Um, and it's a project. It's a, you know, it's an extreme project, but it is a project. Um, and I yeah. really like that. Um, and it also just grounds me to the home. Um, you know, these our jobs can be all consuming and that there's there's times when you need them to be all consuming because that is what the job requires. Um, but there's also these situations and these sort of projects that get created, at least in my mind, that like forces me to like turn off that part of my brain um, for a second and focus on something else. So that that is my that is my idea of the week. I love it. And and I will say too, part of what I love about that is our jobs can be, anybody's job can be all consuming. It's also sort of never ending. Like there's specific moments, you fund a deal, you close a deal, you get repaid in a deal, whatever, but there's always sort of the next thing. And part of what I like about having some sort of project, as you called it, is it's got to start and an end. You know what I mean? Like it's got a finite yes. path and that's actually like psychically, I think, <laughs> good for people like to just be like, okay, well, I accomplished X, right? Whereas we sort of have, you know, a to-do list that has a million things added to it, a million things taken off each day, right? So Yes. So well said. Well, Grishma, so so my best idea to offer mine up, as listeners know, is always inspired by the guest of the week. So Grishma started her career at JP Morgan. As she mentioned, a firm that used to own HPS back in the day. And so in honor of that shared JP Morgan heritage, my best idea this week is I want to recommend the 1999 classic book, The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow. Now, Chernow is probably better known now for his remarkable biography of Alexander Hamilton, which was such an amazing piece that literally Lin-Manuel Miranda read it on vacation and then was inspired to create his Broadway smash hit, Hamilton, after. But 15 years before that, Chernow wrote what I think is the definitive biography of John Pierpont Morgan and the bank that he built. And while, of course, it's a story of a bank and a founder and like their evolution, it's also a history of global finance, literally, like told from the 1930s up to the market crash of 87. And like all of Chernow's works, it's exhaustively researched and stunningly informative, but he has this crazy gift where he can make true stories read like novels. So it's like entertaining, despite how, how weighty of a tome it is. So in honor of Grishma and her formative years at J.B. Morgan, uh, my best idea this week is the fantastic book, The House of Morgan by the legendary Ron Chernow. Grish, have you ever read that one? I have not. Um, shame on me. Um, no, well, will... listen, that, that's, your, that's your summer beach reading then. Absolutely. And believe it or not, it kind of is. Like you, you of all people will appreciate it. Well, with that, Grishma, it's time to say goodbye for the week. Thank you so much for the time. Appreciate you coming on and appreciate all your uh, thoughts on the private credit market. Thanks, Colbert. This is almost like therapy, so I appreciate it. <laughs> We're here for you. Have a good week. 
Thanks again to our guest, Grishma Parekh. Check out our show notes to learn more about Grishma and her work with HBS. You'll also find a link to my best idea, the book, The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners. This podcast is not an offer to buy or a solicitation to sell a security. The podcast is an unscripted discussion pertaining to the investment goals, strategies, and target of the reference offerings. As a reminder, there is no guarantee that any investment or strategy will perform as targeted, and any investment involves the risk of loss of some or all principal invested. This podcast contains statements intended for educational and hypothetical purposes only, and is not to be construed as a promise or performance. Information presented herein reflects the opinions of the speakers and is from sources believed to be reliable, but all information is subject to change. The contents of this communication, first, do not constitute an offer of securities or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities. Second, offers can be made only by the Confidential Private Placement Memorandum, or PPM, which is available upon request. Three, do not and cannot replace the PPM and is qualified in its entirety by the PPM, and four, may not be relied upon in making an investment decision related to any investment offering by the issuer or any affiliate or partner thereof. All potential investors must read the PPM, and no person may invest without acknowledging receipt and complete review of the PPM. With respect to any targeted goals and performance levels outlined herein, these do not constitute a promise of performance, nor is there any assurance that the investment objectives of any program will be attained. All investments carry the risk of loss of some or all of the principal invested. These targeted factors are based upon reasonable assumptions more fully outlined in the offering documents, or PPM, for the respective offering. Consult the PPM for investment considerations, conditions, risk factors, minimum requirements, fees and expenses, and other pertinent information with respect to any investment. These investment opportunities have not been registered under the Securities Act of 1933 and are being offered pursuant to an exemption therefrom and from applicable state security laws. All offerings are intended only for accredited investors unless otherwise specified. Past performance are no guarantee of future results. All information is subject to change. You should always consult a tax professional prior to investing. Investment offers and investment decisions may only be made on the basis of a confidential private placement memorandum issued by issuer or one of its partners issuers. Issuer does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. Thank you for your cooperation. Securities offered through Emerson Equity LLC member FINRA SBIPC, only available in states where Emerson Equity LLC is registered. Emerson Equity LLC is not affiliated with any other entities identified in this communication. An investment in HLEN involves a high degree of risk. You should purchase these securities only if you can afford the complete loss of your investment. You should read the prospectus carefully for a description of the risks associated with an investment in HLEN. These risks include, but are not limited to, the following. We have a limited operating history, and there's no assurance that we will achieve our investment objectives. This is a blind pool offering, and thus you will not have the opportunity to evaluate our investments before we make them. You should not expect to be able to sell your shares regardless of how we perform. You should consider that you may not have access to the money you invest for an extended period of time. We do not intend to list our shares on any securities exchange, and we do not expect a secondary market in our shares to develop prior to any listing. Because you may be unable to sell your shares, you will be unable to reduce your exposure in any market downturn. We intend to implement a share repurchase program, but only a limited number of shares will be eligible for repurchase, and repurchases will be subject to available liquidity and other significant restrictions. An investment in our common shares is not suitable for you if you need access to the money you invest. See Suitability Standards and Share Repurchase Program in the prospectus. 
We cannot guarantee that we'll make distributions, and if we do, we may fund such distribution from sources other than cash flow for operations, including, without limitation, the sale of assets, borrowings, returns of capital, or operating proceeds, and we have no limits on the amounts we may pay from such sources. A return of capital, one, is a return of the original amount invested, two, does not constitute earnings or profit, and three, will have the effect of reducing the basis such that when a shareholder sells its shares, the sale may be subject to taxes even if the shares are sold for less than the original purchase price. Distributions may also be funded in significant part directly or indirectly from temporary fee waivers or expense reimbursements borne by HPS or its affiliates that may be subject to reimbursement to HPS or to its affiliates. The repayment of any amounts owed to our affiliates will reduce future distributions to you to which you would otherwise be entitled. We expect to use leverage, which will magnify the potential for loss on the amounts invested in us. We qualify as an emerging growth company, as defined in the Jumpstart Our Businesses Startup Act, and we cannot be certain if the reduced disclosure requirement applicable to emerging growth companies will make our common shares less attractive to investors. We intend to invest primarily in securities that are rated below investment grade by rating agencies, or that would be rated below investment grade if they are rated. Below investment grade securities, which are often referred to as junk, have predominantly speculative characteristics with respect to the issuer's capacity to pay interest and repay principal. They may also be illiquid and difficult to value. Neither the Securities Exchange Commission nor any state securities regulator has approved or disapproved of these securities or determined if this perspective is truthful or complete. Any reference to the contrary is a criminal offense. The sale material must be read in conjunction with the HLAND prospectus in order to fully understand all the implications and risks of investing in HLAND.